0: The Métis people were not allowed to live on the reserve because they weren't Indians. and They were not seen as, well, call them white people, so they were not allowed to live in the town sites. There wasn't a whole lot of uh, love all around.
1: That's Calvin Reset, Métis elder, historian, and educator. He's our guest today on Piquio K, the Métis Culture Podcast. Brought to you by Métis Nation, Saskatchewan, and Canadian Geographic. Welcome, Pitigwe Tanshikia. I'm Leah Marie Dorian. I'm a Metis artist and writer living near Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, and the host of Pikioke. Pikioke means come and visit, and on this series, we invite you to join us as we go on a journey, exploring our rich Michif language and Metis culture.
0: Tanshik. Tanshik. Rubaboo.
1: Over 10 episodes, we travel to Métis communities all over Saskatchewan, talking with Métis elders, educators, artists, and cultural leaders, and learning about what they are doing to keep the Métis language and culture vibrant and alive for future generations. Ma Si, enjoy! Our guest today is Calvin Reset. He is a Michif originally from the Capel Valley in southern Saskatchewan. A former executive director of the Gabriel Dumont Institute, Calvin's early career was spent as a researcher, curriculum writer for the Institute in Regina. He has written multiple acclaimed books on Métis history and culture, and he has been involved in a number of important Métis history documentaries, including Ashes to Tears, The Green Lake Story. Calvin is a knowledge keeper and proud grandparent living in Regina, Saskatchewan. Calvin, welcome to Piquio
0: Thank you for having me be here.
1: Calvin, I have a few questions for you. Uh, I'd like to know a little bit about you, where you grew up, and a little bit about your Métis heritage.
0: Wow. We got a while? We do. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Well, I grew up in uh, the Cotepo area of the Coppell Valley. That... uh, would be down by the community of LaBrette, down Fort Capel, down in that area. And uh, I lived on the road allowance with my grandmother, not for a lot of years, but when I was small. And then uh, we moved into town when I was able to go to school. We moved into the town of Indian Head. So uh, that's, I consider it my hometown, but I don't live there. I now live in Regina and my family and all my roots are out there. So I go out there fairly, fairly often and reconnect with fam- friends and family and Excellent. stuff like that. And so that's where my meaty roots are. And, uh, we, my family, I, I, I often call it, we were indentured servants. We worked for a farmer. Um, there was a, there was a really prosperous farmer out there by the name of Ernie Skinner.
1: Right, And, and Ernie that's Skinner right. had
0: lots of uh, farmland and, uh, he hired lots of matey families, and uh, the, they all worked for him. My whole entire family worked for him. My aunties, uh, my mom, they did his housework. They did his garden, looked after his animals. And, and uh, all my uncles worked in the fields and stuff like that. And uh, that was, well, tractors were just sort of starting out back then. There was a lot right. of horses and stuff right. like that. Right, right, So they, uh, they did all that. And then, uh, so I grew up there as a kid, and I remember having lots of fond memories.
1: Wow. You know, it's such a beautiful part of Saskatchewan, that valley system. It's uh, certainly a place that's special to us Métis people. Calvin, for your family, Michif language is associated with the Brissett family. Did anyone in your family speak Michif? And if so, who spoke Michif in your family? Uh,
0: Well, my mom and my grandma used to speak it all the time. Of course, all my uncles and my aunties and I, my older brother did, and my uh, my other brother. I have two brothers, and the oldest one could speak it, and my second brother could only understand it, but he wouldn't speak it.
1: I see. And
0: uh, my sister, and and then there's. There, I have an older sister. She knows more than me, but uh, of course, uh, then I knew the swear words, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and,
1: uh, yeah, I gotta know the swear uh, yeah, words. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: And, uh, You know, there's still a few words, and you know, it still comes around, and we. But uh, it's certainly not part of my daily vocabulary.
1: Well, you know, what do you think was the the key reason why your generation particularly didn't get the Mitch of language?
0: Uh well, it. Uh, there was no place for it, right? And I really. Uh, my, I say, my my family all worked for a farmer. His his. Language was English, and uh, the language of commerce was always English. And all of the Métis people, like after that, all my uncles worked on the elevator construction crews, and uh, so it was all the language is English. Then, and, and that was the language of commerce. And Machif was never allowed, sorry, for lack of a better word, yeah. in the community. It did, there was no place for it. It didn't, uh, they never taught it in schools, it never got endorsed in any of the university system, nothing. It was just Ignored,
1: you know I have that same personal experience, the mischief language among my generation is we just don't have that ability to speak. we know a few vocabulary words. Do you have any little phrases you can say like language mitche's phrases in your family that have carried uh, through that well, you can w- we have phrase? a few
0: jokes, you know like uh, like we used to say like uh, if some, one of the insults you say somebody you say yours ares are cheap why <laughs> <laughs> That's your, your ears are pointed. <laughs>
1: I love that. That's yeah. old school. Yeah, that was, that was one
0: of the ones that we used. That was our ultimate insult here. That is our cheap way.
1: We're, we're documenting the <laughs> midship secrets of the valley. Uh, thank you, Calvin. Uh, Calvin, how does it feel to you to not be able to speak your heritage midship language?
0: Well, I feel, well, there are times, like certainly when I go to gatherings where there's uh, First Nations elders, they speak their own language. I know I go the different events and ceremonies and people say oh will you do an opening prayer and I, i'll say yeah sure and so i have to do it in english because i uh, right, don't know my too. own language right and so right. It, it i feel like something's missing i feel like uh, i don't know inadequate in some ways you know and uh, you know and I, I like i feel cheated in some ways too right yeah we're the first generation yeah, yeah, both of us yeah, to
1: lose our yeah. indigenous heritage and, language
0: well i i cheated too my mother died when I was a kid. Like she got sick when I was 12 and she died when I was 13. So I lost that link to the language. And uh, my dad was a non-Indigenous man. And so I was raised by him and he wouldn't let us speak Michif at home. Right in the home. Yes. So it was gone at that point. Right.
1: Even the siblings discouraged from speaking to you being younger. Absolutely. Calvin, um, in Saskatchewan, Michif is endangered as a whole. What do you think is the reason for that level of endangerment? You shared some of your family experience reasons. Why do you think? Well, there's
0: there's been never no concerted effort to bank the language. You know, like I know Gabriel Dumont Institute has done some things, but they've been, they're grossly underfunded to to do that. And so it's always piecemeal funding. If they get a chunk of money from somewhere, they'll hire somebody for a project and they may do something on it, but... There's not a consistent, ongoing strategy for it. There's not uh, a group of dedicated individuals that that uh, establish themselves, sort of saying As let's the Machif language preser- preservation group or whatever. Yeah, there's so a,
1: much work to be done. Yeah, eh? so much, and uh, yeah. then and
0: there's different dialects. Like there's a different dialect in the Capel Valley as opposed to Isle That's Cross. Right.
1: That's right. That's stuff like that, yeah. and
0: uh, so uh, you know, and uh, so it's as you say, uh, lots of work needs to be done and they're not enough. Uh, and for lack of a better word, all of our old people that speak it are not educated. And so they speak a patois. And, uh, you know, mm. a, a friend of mine used to call it, you know, bastard Cree. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know oh, they're speaking bastard Cree. You, say, you know, hey, yeah. what the heck? <laughs> the eh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, so uh, the mixture, right? And so, But it was always, uh, there's, and it's a confidence thing, so lots of those old people never felt confident that they were saying it right or was it accurate or was it dictionary quality and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So there's never been anybody that's really taken that bull by the horns to sort of saying we need to do this and this is important and this is significant. And there's been no dedicated government, uh, Aboriginal government even, but no dedicated government structure to saying we're committed to this. Yeah. It hasn't happened with the Métis Nation. It hasn't happened with the Métis National Council. It hasn't happened with the federal government, any provincial government, none of them. Just so we're that. so
1: we're just so much work to be done at so many levels. Well,
0: I look at, you know, like our Métis community in Saskatchewan is, is, as, is as big or bigger than the French community. And there's been so much dedicated dollars to the French language community in the province of Saskatchewan. Yeah. We have 2%. Saskatchewan is a French community. And there's been, we have French immersion schools, like, and it's lots of dollars been dedicated to it, nothing for the Maine community.
1: Yeah, we've had to fight for any kind of little initiative that we've had pop up. It'd be nice to see some big strategies, and I think they're starting to to wake up to that. Calvin, you mentioned road allowance. I think a lot of our listeners don't know what a road allowance is. Could you talk about that and explain what it is? Oh,
0: for sure. Well, if you want, sort of could get a, a technical visual here. As you drive down the road, if you're driving down the highway, what is on either side of the highway? is the ditch, right? That's right. Okay, yeah. so the 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 span of the ditch from one fence to the other fence where the farmers plant their crops, that area that is dedicated is called the road allowance. So it's the the area set aside by the government to build roads. It may be a country road, it may be a highway, it may be a correction line, but it's dedicated government land for a, for a, a road. So therefore... Back in the day, uh, my community uh, were not seen as citizens. They were not allowed to vote. They were not allowed to go to school. They were not seen as anything. They were seen as surplus people, and they weren't legally couldn't go to school till 1944.
1: That's right in Saskatchewan.
0: Yeah. Then, so as a result of that, uh, it was sporadic and hit and miss at that point. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the ones that did go to school, so. Our families, uh, uh, they didn't live in the communities because they weren't seen as taxpayers and they didn't own their houses. And so they were ostracized and they weren't allowed to live on the reserves because they weren't seen as First Nations. So they went and they lived in the areas that had been set aside by the government that were seen as extra land, correction lines and stuff like that. They built little shacks. Built of, Well, today they would be built of pallets, right? Right. But back then they would have been used, Saudis, tar paper shacks, uh, and families lived in them. And they lived in them and uh, then the kids may or may not go to school of them. And the dads would be working for the farmers and the mums would be working for the farmers. They would be looking after the gardens, you know, butchering their chickens, gathering their... St- Cutting fence pickets, gathering stones, out of the fields. Lots of hard all work, all sorts of stuff, Although labor absolutely. intensive, right? And yes. uh, and so that's where all my family. We all did that. We all grew up that way.
1: Yeah. And how do you think the road allowance experience really affected the transmission and protection and preservation of the of language?
0: Oh uh, well, what is interesting is that uh, the road allowance served well it was uh, in many ways. Uh, the, uh, the people who lived there were shamed. You know, they were they were looked down, everybody looked down the road and seen them as less-thans and sort of things like that. And so their language would have been not spoken by anybody but them, and so they wouldn't have spoken it in public. They would have spoken it to themselves only when they were interacting with each other. And I know uh, the the best thing, I suppose, about those road allowances was uh, uh a, a guy, a foreman of a crew could in, employ an entire community, an entire family. Isn't
1: that true? He could get yeah. a whole
0: construction crew. And uh, because all of the work at that point was apprentice-oriented. And so my uncle, for example, would, was a foreman. And he would take the young guys in, on the elevators and he'd apprentice them. And if you didn't measure up, you got a couple of months to prove yourself. And if you didn't measure up, you were gone. Like he brought another guy yeah. the next time around, you know, sort of thing. And uh, so it was about you learned you learned how to work hard and you learned how to listen and you learned how to follow the rules. And
1: Which are those cultural standards of being a Métis? Like yeah. it's that ethic of work, hey? Yeah, like yeah. we both seen it. We both grew up with that work ethic, yeah. that mid hard work ethic. And road allowance experiences really did leave. to, I see the shame. that it created, Mm -hmm. being treated like a second-class citizen, really does affect the generations. Well, one
0: of the ones, like when I used to teach classes, I used to talk a lot about how, if you use the war as an example, the Second World War is a prime example. The Mady men, along with the First Nations men, went off to Europe and they fought in that war. And uh, they came home, they were saying they were brothers in arms with all of their white brethren. And uh, they came back home and then they were... Uh, The the First Nations men were not given any pensions. They were sent back to the reserves. The Métis men got nothing either. And uh, they talk about how, uh, what was there for them. And they went back to their road allowances. And uh, so at that point, there was a vast flood of immigrants coming from Europe, you know, coming in the 40s and 50s. And uh, so what would end up happening was these uh, immigrants would go, if they're having a tough time, they would go to the rural municipalities, the RMs, and they'd get cases of spam and spork and click and all of <laughs> yeah. that processed meat, yeah. right? That was the groceries. That was allocated. And if you had a status card, you went and you got uh, to the Indian Affairs office or the man, the Indian agent, and he gave you the rations. But if you were a matey, you got nothing. And so our families would often try to define, like I know my family, they're used to try and reset some, they'd french French- Yeah, french get that, and, kind of
1: pretend that French- say, is It's a reset
0: or, uh, or rosette or whatever, and then they would try to pass themselves off as French in order to get rations, right? And yeah, there's, survival, And there's other it? families that would try to pass themselves off as Ukrainians if they're close to a Ukrainian community, right? Yeah. And stuff like that for, for, uh, to get, in order to, to get food. And so, you know, when you look, when you take it down to those terms, that's pretty, uh, pretty, pretty harsh. And
1: it's, it's a hard history. Some yeah, of the work yeah. that both of us have done, it's yeah. not been on easy no. topics because we've been so close to the older generation yeah. and that's their lived experience. Well, those,
0: those old people are the salt of the earth though. And it's oh, the, aren't the, they? They, they are. And it's yeah. because of them, I, is that's who I am because of them, Right.
1: And we have to be accountable to them, you know, Absolutely. to to tell their stories. There a lot of them aren't here to to tell this experience. I'm so grateful for you, Calvin, oh. speaking to these stories that I think we need to hear in Canada. Calvin, um, you went to the Suntep program, you've got your you were one of the first graduates of the Bachelor of Education at the Saskatchewan Urban Native Teacher Education program in Regina. Looking back, um, what has Suntep meant to you as a Medi uh, educator and how has it helped promote Medi culture and identity?
0: Well, what is interesting is when I first went there, uh, I was, I've always been big. I'm like, I'm six foot plus and I'm two, oh, 260 pounds and a little little bigger now than I used to be, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I was always big and rugged and uh, strong and kind of an intimidating force in lots of ways. And so, when I first went there, I walked in and the staff was all female, and they said, "Who, you're a change agent." I didn't know what a change agent right. was, right? And uh, so they said, "You're going to make a difference. You got to break down the barriers. You got to go out there and promote your community. You yeah. got to get out there and promote your culture." And uh, so I spent 34 years working in the education world, kicking down doors and taking on the system and uh, challenging. Everybody to make sure uh, those that didn't have a voice, I spoke for them.
1: That's right. And
0: uh, a lot of those people were First Nations families, but a lot of them were Métis families. And I don't make a lot of discrepancies mm-hmm. between those families because only the politicians do that. I, yeah. I'm at the community level. I see we have we share the similar issues and they're all the same, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So and Suntap. Well, when I went to Suntep also it felt like my experiences in a high school where I grew up in a small town of Indian Head. I called it Redneck Saskatchewan, right? And, uh, <laughs> yeah. And, it, and and those years beat me up, and I lived a conditional upbringing. And so when I went to Suntep, it was like I had four years of university where every day a little piece a piece of me healed. I went there as a beat-up oh, mess, and every yeah. day I learned something about myself and about my community and our resiliency and what we went through and why we went through it, and it wasn't my fault, and it was... Uh, it was because of These, government agencies. And the bigger, and, yeah, yeah, the bigger colonial and, experience. And I learned all yeah. about that stuff. And, and and I realized that every day, a piece of me healed. And oh. at the end of four years, I was able to go out and tackle the world. And that's what I did. And, uh, you know, and to this very day, I'm, I'm 68 next week. And to this very day, that's my job still, is to speak for those that don't have the ability to speak for themselves.
1: That is so important to do. I think we need to do more of that. Calvin, you you graduated from Suntep and then you actually worked there in the publishing area yeah. and were a very uh, huge contributor to the publications. You published the book, Flags of the Métis. You did the Métis Development Series in the Canadian West through the Gabriel Dumont Institute. Why was it important to do those stories, those oh, beautiful little <coughs> books you made?
0: Those are interesting. Well, you know the very first one, my very first day in the job, I showed up and my boss was a, a great big, large, nearly 500 pound Jewish fellow from Toronto. And Holy he, moly. He was, he was <laughs> a just a massive man. And he was really smart. He had a great sense of humor. He really liked me. And the first day I walked in, I said, well, what do you want me to do? And there was this, uh, I was a farm kid too. And so there's this old tractor stuck in the playground outside. He says, your first job is to go out there and start that tractor. (laughs) And he burst out laughing. Then he said, seriously, he handed me a piece of paper that had six paragraphs on it. He says, you got a first day of the job. He says, you got a meeting this afternoon over at the Department of Education with uh, a fellow over there. And he says, your job is to go over there and tell me you're going to write six books. And these are your six topics. Each was a little paragraph. I said, oh, and he says, you'd ask him for $50,000 and settle for, settle for five. I said, oh, okay. So I go over there. Well, it turns out I knew the guy
1: for who, fr- that I was meeting
0: with. And yeah. his family were from the farming community I grew up with. So we end up shooting the breeze for an hour about farming. And then he says to me, gee, i got to go to a meeting. What do you want here anyway? I said, oh, I'm supposed to come and ask, show you these six topics Six paragraphs, and say I want to write six books, one each one of those, and uh, I'm to ask you for fifty thousand dollars and settle for five. He says I'll give you nine. I said okay. <laughs>
1: That's a wonderful, Calvin. <laughs> yeah, that was my
0: first first day of negotiation, right? <laughs>
1: and your first door of book writing and, your own books. Yeah,
0: yeah. And then I went back and I looked and I looked at these six little paragraphs, and I said, Holy smokes, I don't know anything about that. And I had access to a really good library. Yeah, one of the library. best in. Yeah. So I read every single book in that library that was pertained to Métis history. Uh, morning, noon, and night. That's all I did read. And uh, I read all of the House of Commons debates. I read all of the rare yeah. books that they had. And for some strange reason, that stuff had stick in my head like glue. I just, and, yeah. and, and, and uh, they had a lot of, done a lot of work. And um, one of the guys had spent a lot of work in the archives. And there was, had lots of uh, archival documents I went through those. Like I read the entire Selkirk papers. I know
1: I, not many people have the the discipline yeah. nor the time. And
0: uh, it took me uh, six weeks, and I was in, in 1812 to 1822. And
1: <laughs> that's like the peak of the Métis yeah. nationalism. Yeah, but yeah. I read
0: those whole entire papers, and I, I lived and breathed that stuff. Right. Wonderful. And. Uh, and to this very day, it still sticks in my head 30 years later or 40 I, years later. What I
1: like about your early writing is you wrote for the community and for a younger audience. Yeah. So you took this complex, original research and you made it readable to our community and to the school system.
0: Well, I had to. Uh, I was uh, told that, uh, uh, first of all, I I read all this stuff and I read all these different perspectives. And they said, well, why are you reading that stuff? Why are you reading that garbage? You know, what some guys would say, Yeah. Why are you reading Thomas Flanagan? Why are you reading that stuff? And I said, "Well, I got to know the story. I said, I got to know all, all angles of the story before I could tell my own story."
1: Oh, that's an excellent. So that's how
0: I approached it. And then uh, I would interpret my own and somebody told me, one of the ladies I worked with from the ministry, she said, uh, "History is like a play." And uh, you have a series, a bunch of acts in a play, and you can interpret it any way you want. And what you can do is uh, there's all kinds of research available, so you interpret each as you want in, with your own play. So that's that's why. So I kind of took that approach to it, and uh, then uh, so I was true to those little uh, projects, and uh, I negotiated with the ministry that they would uh, be on the recommended book list.
1: That's right, and they were in the schools
0: for years. They hit Saskatchewan, they hit Ontario, and British Columbia on the recommended book lists, and they marketed them, and they did very well. I didn't get anything for it, but uh, the Institute got some notoriety from it, right?
1: Yes, it did. Yes, it did.
0: And then because I was working in that publishing area, the phone would ring, you know, five times a day, ten times a day, sometimes more, and there were certain times of the year that people would always say, "What do you know about these matey flags?" That was always a
1: yeah. They want to know the symbol, the history day and of the all flag, that sort of stuff, yeah. right?
0: And Louis Riel Day and stuff. And then of course the the front desk would patch it through to me all the time. And people kept asking me this stuff. Finally, I just got sick of it because all I knew was this. Uh, the New Breed magazine had uh, done a calendar, and they had three flags. They had the flag of eighteen. Uh, 16 with Cuthbert Grant, and then they had the uh, one of uh, 1870, and then they had the 1885 ones, and they had three of them on this thing, and they talked about one little snippet about the Métis flags. So I took it upon myself saying, gee, I, there's got to be more to it than that. So I went back, and I went to the Selkirk papers, and on and on, and I found... Lots of examples of Metis flags. They were very individualistic people. The buffalo hunters had flags. They had different uh, connections, different groups, different areas, different regions, a lot of symbolism to churches, all sorts of stuff, right? So I just, every time I ran across something, I put it in a folder. And then one day I said, okay, I'm going to do this book, (laughs) this this children's book. And so I wrote this. It came to be, yeah.
1: Wonderful. Calvin, you've not only done the books and made that huge contribution to our community, but you've been in videos also. You were in, one of my favorite videos is called Ashes to Tears, the Green Lake Story. I think every Canadian should hear that story of Green Lake. Tell me why you got involved in telling mm. the Green Lake story and why it's an important story well, to so
0: uh, uh-huh. Ashes to Tears, yes. Uh, uh, well... What was what was interesting, when I was an employee at the institute, Gabriel Dumont Institute, I knew an older gentleman who was part of the part of that story. Well, and what had happened was the Mi'kmaq community lived along the road allowance by Muskogee Reserve. Right. Okay. And uh, and uh, so what had happened was uh, the government wanted to get rid of them they were seen as a nuisance because of uh farmers were complaining about the kids stealing their chickens and etc cetera, etc cetera. so they government recruited some members of the matey community and uh and said go and tell your people that they are being relocated to green lake mm-hmm, right and so I remember that story. yeah and yeah. so uh that uh, those individuals went and told the f- People that were living there, and in fact, they were members of their own family, their own extended family, their own community. And uh, the people were relocated to Green Lake, and then when, uh, as they were tra- they were put on the train, and as the train was pulling out uh, from Lestock, where right where the right. town where the town was, and uh, they burned their little houses, right, so they couldn't come back. And so this gentleman came to me, and he says. I want you to write that story. And uh, he gave me all of the research and he told me the story, and then I sort of went out about it and I learned other things and got really interested in it. And then I realized that uh, one of my bosses was uh, family was directly connected to that fellow who did the burning.
1: Oh, isn't it something? It it was pretty
0: awkward, and so I said to him, I can't write this story. Uh, and he said, why? I said, I'm not old enough. And he kind of said, I get that. And I said, okay. And then, uh, 30 years later, uh, I was at a, a dinner and he was the keynote speaker and he was telling that story mm-hmm. and, uh, he, uh, invited me up front and, uh, he asked me, uh, he says there was, he had a, a young lady there who was going to make a video. And he said to me, uh, this lady's going to tell this story and I want you to be her helper. So he offered me as a free consultant, right? And I said, okay. And then the people who organized the event, I knew them quite well, who organized it dinner, called me over and, and introduced me to the same girl Who's going to do the video and offered my services as a free consultant and she heard I just laughed <laughs> and then there was another lady who was also sharing the story she was part of it but connected to this other fellow and uh, calls me over and she introduced me to this woman and offered me as a free consultant so I says I guess I have to do this so that's what got me doing it and uh no I'm quite happy I did it you know and so it may uh all, all I could tell is what I knew, like I and I knew from what he told me and I knew from what I'd read, but I never it was not my actual lived experience, but that was what I'd heard and and uh I've had people who say that's a pretty harsh story, and uh others who say it's needed to be said, and others say I don't agree with that, I think it's wrong, you know stuff like uh, that that's, and the ones yeah, the put ones it out that, there and yeah, and the ones it. that are certainly criticizing me were the ones from the Hungarian community from around that area because they were the ones who uh, were the farm community who uh, were not treating our people very well.
1: Yeah, that's why it's such a hard story to tell, but to be entrusted and our communities. I've seen that happen to you so many times. Old people chase you down because they trust you to tell their story accurately and well. So I'm glad you uh, had that confidence to stand and, and tell that story. Calvin, we're rolling down here on the the interview, but I have a few questions left about SAS Culture Board. I know okay. that you've been on the board. Yep. Why do us Métis in Saskatchewan need to be on boards like SAS well, Culture?
0: Uh, well, our community has been underrepresented. I know I find, out, I find out like how many millions of dollars a board like SAS Culture allocates every year, over $15 million a year. I asked one of the staff how, may, how much of that money is dedicated to the indigenous community. He said, Oh, three or four hundred thousand dollars." Like, so it's the amount is way less, right? And our people uh, are not involved. They're not. They're not part of the mainstream organizations. They're not readily thought of every now and again. They had a brilliant project. They 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 go with their hat in their hand and saying, "I want to do this project. Can I have some, and some money and." they may or may not get a pittance, right? So I see it as uh, we have a, a, a very homemade story to tell, a Saskatchewan story, a Canadian story we to sure tell, do. and nobody else is uh, telling it. So it's it's really important that uh, we our voices be heard. And uh, I'm working very hard to make sure the Métis community, the First Nations community, and the new immigrant community all have an equal... Saying this, and it's not just based on uh, you know the, the same old tired Canadian uh, celebratory history. That it's
1: it's so important to yeah, yeah, yeah change, and then hopefully some of those dollars will go absolutely. right into our community yeah. and get the language, the culture, and the youth and That's, the elders connecting. Absolutely. Well, Calvin, I just love to close our interview today by asking you for one teaching. Can you share a midship cultural value for all of our listeners today that we can reflect on? Oh,
0: boy, there's lots. But I would say the most significant thing to me is uh, family and uh, relationships. And like I know one of the things I often think about is if you use the analogy of a stair or a ladder, And, you know, people at the top of the ladder, they looked down at the people beneath them and all that stuff. Our community were at the bottom of the ladder. They were never at the top of the ladder. And so they had nobody else to help them except each other who were down there at the bottom of the ladder. And so they became, you know, respectful and responsible to each other. And so they were generous to each other because no no one else was generous to them. So that's how it became. And... So yeah, you trust you you trust each other, you live for each other and you support each other. Now I know you have political differences and you argue like a like a friend of mine said to me one time, oh, he said, I was on this board, and there's these two matey guys. They, he said, I, they almost were fist fighting. And he says, then all of a sudden somebody, says, oh, let's take a break, let's take a break. So they sit down and one says, oh, how's your boy doing? He says, how's he doing in hockey? And he yeah. says, they were best buddies. And he says, I yeah. couldn't believe it. He says, 30 seconds ago, they were almost fist fighting. And I said, well, that's how serious people take their responsibilities and their commitment to their community, and they want to make sure everybody's treated right. And they step up and they have this responsibility to each other to make sure that uh, they do.
1: And I, I totally agree with that. I love that teaching. Um, without good, strong families, there's no nation. There's yep. no community. And you're right. If we all can keep the spirit of our Métis, michif families together, that's, we'll keep going. That's right. Get stronger.
0: Well, one, of the, one of the guys also used to say to me, he says, if we all sound the same, one of us doesn't need to be here. And Alan says, you know, if we're, and if we're all talking like, if you don't have any wild ducks, and all you got is tame ducks, life is indeed it's very not boring, exciting eh? at all, eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. I
1: don't think any Métis community uh, um quiet to debate. Right. I, we've always had good ability to Absolutely. debate and think things through.
0: Absolutely. And uh, the, di- the dynamics and, uh, you know, the, the loud voices back and forth. But there's always consensus, you know, and it works towards consensus. And it's about you say what's on your mind, and I know I can recall those cultural early car, cultural meetings, uh, Gabriel Duan Institute cultural conferences, that somebody would get on there and they'd start out with an agenda. And by the time two days later was over, they'd go 180 degrees and completely change their mind just by listening to others. And it was so powerful.
1: It is powerful. Yeah. Well, Calvin, I thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, yeah. your stories, your teachings, and... Uh, May you have a wonderful birthday next <laughs> week. Yeah. I'm so happy that you're you're um, you know growing older and uh, you know have so much to share with our community and keep doing that hard work. Thanks right. for joining us, Calvin.
0: Well, this is absolutely my pleasure, and I, if I can continue to be of help in the future with you, I'd be honored to. Thank you, Calvin. All right, have bye-bye. a
1: good day. Hey, day. That's it for this episode of OK. Come and visit a Métis Nation, Saskatchewan, and Canadian Geographic podcast. The QK is produced by David McGuffin of Explore Podcast Productions. Our opening and closing theme music is by Métis Fiddler, Adam Daniel, and me, Leodorian. Dorian. And if you enjoy this podcast, give us a five-star rating or write a review. Also, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes and tell your friends about us on social media. I'm Leah Marie Dorian. Until next time, keep up the mitten. See you later.